For marketing agencies and social media managers looking to prove the value of their work, I've got something special for you. Agora Pulse is not only Social Media Examiner's tool of choice as an all-in-one social media management tool, it also allows you to track the traffic, conversion, and revenue from every social post, comment, and private message. Learn how to prove your social media ROI with a free training or a free trial by visiting agorapulse.com SME today. Again, agorapulse.com SME. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. I am really excited about today's show. I'm going to be joined by Joey Coleman, and we're going to talk about how to turn your customers into advocates customer advocacy. And you might be thinking, eh, customer advocacy. Let me just tell you, this is secret sauce kind of stuff. You'll understand why when you listen to today's show. By the way, if you want to email me, podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. Come straight to my inbox. Now let's transition over to this week's brand new discovery. Helping you stay alive in a social jungle, here's this week's survival tip. I'm joined this week by Eric Fisher with a brand new find. What'd you discover, Eric? I found this really cool app to create forms out on the web called Typeform. Typeform. So tell us a little bit more. Yeah. So uh, at some point here, I came across a link and I clicked it and it was this really cool looking, you know how you can, you can create a, a questionnaire out on Google Apps or you know through Google Apps. and you Or can SurveyMonkey. Yeah, SurveyMonkey and all that. Typeform is a version of that. Uh, but what they're doing is so like visually appealing, it, it just feels like good UI, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you can find that at typeform.com. You can get started for free, and most of the functionality is there. It's got some branding and stuff. But the 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 cool thing is is that just you got to check it out. The typeform uh, site itself even shows it off. But there's all these different cool things like you can have information or payments or uh, like people can register for things. It's really, really cool. So is it mobile optimized? Does it look really nice on a mobile device? Yes. Yeah, I mean, because that's one of the big disadvantages of a lot of these things like Google Forms and um, and and SurveyMonkey is kind of mobile optimized, but it doesn't it doesn't have that really beautiful user interface that it sounds like this one does. Um, is it something you think you could share, like if you want to do a quick survey on Twitter, for example, to collect data? Oh yeah, I'm sure of it. Yeah, you you just create you you go through because you can even create the. Um you can even create a form on your mobile device, and you'll see what it looks like as you're creating it. So what makes it so different than everything else that we've seen? Is it, is it just the simplicity at which the, the thing works or the, uh, the user interface or what? Yeah, it's both. I mean, the fact that I immediately, uh, when I clicked through and was taking the survey, just felt – I mean, if you ask yourself, when was the last time I really felt good while I was taking a survey – <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and I did, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like I'm sitting there taking a survey on my phone, and I'm just like, "Wow, this is really kind of fun to take this survey because it's easy to do. 
it looks cool, and the user interface kind of feels almost like every time I enter in my information, I'm rewarded by moving on to the next screen. Hmm. They've, so they've gamified it somehow. They, huh? they have, yeah. Very cool. So. Uh, and uh, how, where do we go to find out more about it? So you head on over to typeform.com, and you can get started and learn more about it. So it's web-based is what I hear you saying. So yes. that means it works across any platform pretty exactly. much, right? Yes. And um, you said you, it's free to get started. So what do they just allow like so many uh, survey takers and then it costs? Or how does that work? No, the basic plan even includes unlimited basic type forms and responses and all of that. It's just that when you upgrade to the Pro and the Pro Plus, there's a certain monthly charge and it gives you like a custom thank you screen and uh, priority support with them. And it, you can remove the type form branding, which is, again, how I found out about what it even was that I was, us- that I was using as I took the, uh, mm. the form. But mm. yeah, I mean, the basic one was beautiful when I did it. Awesome. And again, that URL? Typeform.com. Thank you so much, Eric. You're welcome. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. Let's now transition over to this week's interview with Joey Coleman. To help simplify your social safari, here's this week's special guest. I'm very excited to be joined this week by Joey Coleman. If you don't know who Joey is, he's a customer advocacy consultant and coach, and he's worked with a lot of brands you're probably familiar with, including Hyatt Hotels, NASA, and Zappos. He's also a frequent keynote speaker and leads workshops on the customer experience and the customer journey. Joey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Today, Joey and I are going to explore what it takes to turn a customer into an advocate. Yes, we're talking about customer advocacy. Joey, let me start with a bit of your story. Um, I know you've got a pretty cool backstory. I want to know, how did you get to the point where you started focusing on customers and the customer experience? Sure. Well, you're absolutely right, Michael. My career has been very eclectic, to say the least. And I think like most things in life, the path is always easier to see when you're looking back on it than when you're looking forward. Uh, As a quick overview, I went straight from college to law school. After three years in law school, I left to do business consulting. I then was a criminal defense attorney for many years in the courtroom. I then taught executive education courses. I went on to run a division of a promotional products company. And then about 15 years ago, started my own brand experience and design firm that led me to speaking on stages all over the world about how to create these remarkable experiences that will take someone from being a one-time customer to a customer for life. What's kind of interesting is in each of these different careers, uh, success hinged on two things. First, an understanding of human psychology, right? Why do people believe what they believe and why do they do the things they do? And second of all, an ability to take that understanding and then persuade people to take a certain course of action, whether that was in a sales pitch, a brochure, or a website, an infographic I would design, a piece of evidence introduced in the courtroom, or even a closing argument. So as such, you know, looking back on it, my entire career has been all about the experience. Mm. And in short, what's the experience you're currently having and how do we make that experience better? Now, you said about 15 years ago, you started your own company and you said it focused on and you used a certain phrase. I, want, I didn't quite catch it. Can you say what that was again? 
I, I focused on brand experience and design. What and is, yeah, what, what is I, that exactly? Yeah, so basically there's a lot of marketing firms out there. They'll help you build ad campaigns. There are a lot of branding agencies that will help you design a logo. I came at it from the – and then there's graphic design firms that obviously will execute on the visuals of all of these things. But I kind of looked at it as brand experience and design was saying, how are we making sure that all the different elements of your – business or of your enterprise are working in harmony together. So the name of my business is Design Symphony. And the idea was to consciously design the way all the business pieces of your business worked so that we got every aspect of your business on the same sheet of music playing in harmony together. Hmm. And that would be logo design, ad campaigns, websites, designing speeches, designing internal messaging for employees, all of those things. And in doing that, you know, I kind of got into it because I had an interest in those things. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that experience was really the through line or the thread that connected all of this together. Got it. So that's a good transition into talking about, first of all, what how do you define, let's start with how do you define customer advocacy and then let's get into why does it matter today? Well, I think customer advocacy is really the end goal for most organizations. And customer advocacy is when you reach the point where your customers are such big believers in who you are, what you do, that they become your external sales force. They are driving new business. They are increasing the amount of business they do with you because they have just become such big raving fans of everything that you stand for and who you are and how you operate that they can't but help themselves to zealously advocate for you and continue to drive and build your business. And when a company reaches that point, it's when things get really interesting. Because now you're growing at a rate and with a a kind of a speed and a pitch that you really just have to hold on and enjoy the ride. Hmm. Interesting. And why do you think it's so important today in this noisy world that we're in? Well, if you'll indulge me, Michael, in a very brief kind of overview of our history and business, right? So in the 1980s, we have this movement come out of Japan that's all about quality control. This becomes known as the total quality management approach to business. And it was all about reducing product defects as close to zero as possible. Out of this, we get things like GE's huge success, Six Sigma black belts, and a general belief that when you buy something, it's going to work, which for those of us that are on the podcast, including myself, that are old enough to remember, that really wasn't the case before 1980. Before 1980, you'd go to the store and you'd buy something, and there was just as much likelihood that the product inside that package was broken as it was able to work. Mm -hmm. And the 80s kind of changed that. Then we have the 90s come along. And in the 90s, it was all about just-in-time manufacturing. Companies like Dell shorten the supply chain. They build things on demand. And as a result, they can dramatically control inventory while at the same time pushing prices lower and lower. And companies start to succeed based on being the lowest price player in the game. While still having this high level of quality, it's now a race to the bottom in terms of price. We see companies like Dell and Walmart really coming on the scene and taking market share. Then we get to the 2000s. And the 2000s is all about the internet era, right? 24-7, 365 access. Everybody needs a website. Everything is available globally. Everything is right now, 24-7 total accessibility. And suddenly we come to the 2010s. And now we look at what's happened over the last three decades and we see that quality is at an all-time high, prices are at an all-time low, 
everything is moving towards commoditization. Everything is accessible to everyone, anywhere in the world, all the time. Mm -hmm. So what's left? What's left is the experience that your customers have. The experience your customers have is the last great differentiator and the only one that is really going to stand the test of time. Because quality can always get better. Uh, price can always get lower to a point. Access, once it's 24-7, 365, well, what more can you do? It's like experience is the last place where you can move the dial. And the way that ties into customer advocacy is I think we're now at a place where most customers aren't going to go around saying, you know, Michael's got the lowest price you ever imagined or Michael's product has zero defects. Like those things are expected. What they're going to say is, oh my gosh, when you deal with Michael, you feel like you're the only customer he has. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. He takes incredible care of you. He always comes through in a pinch. Not only is the product great and the price great, but the service and the experience is world-class. And that's when you tip into full-on customer advocacy. I, I think of why are people willing to pay so much more for a Apple computer, like an Apple laptop, when they can go out and get a Google Chromebook for 300 bucks, right? And I think this might be a good example, right? Because you can walk into a Apple store and talk to the Genius Bar without an appointment. Um, it seems like they really create incredible experience when you're in the store and their product is pretty cool. But in the grand scheme of things, you can do Microsoft Word or Google Docs or whatever on just about any darn computer there is out there, right? Are they an example of a company that's benefiting from creating experiences and advocacy and Abs loyalty, if you will? Absolutely. And one only needs to look at the lines that form outside any Apple store whenever they release any new product. Right. It doesn't matter. And there are lines of hundreds of people. Now, without bagging on any of the other computer or software companies out there, when was the last time you saw news coverage about lines outside the Microsoft store to get a new Surface. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't happen. And that's not me being critical of Microsoft. It's just the reality of the world we live in. Right. Apple made a conscious decision very early on that the experience their customers had using their products was what mattered most. And so they designed products that were aesthetically, aesthetically beautiful, were easy to use, you didn't need to be a computer science major to be able to turn on the computer and navigate through it. Everything was a visual graphical interface. So somebody who'd never used a computer before, you can put a mouse in their hands and have them navigate through and they understand how to use this. I mean, I have a three-year-old son who navigates an iPad as if he's been using it for 20 years. No one... <laughs> No one had to teach him. I didn't have to sit down and say to him, son, you press on it to make it play. Or you use your fingers and you spread your fingers apart to make it bigger. These are gesticulations that are core to the human existence that Apple has grabbed onto and said, we're going to infuse this into our product. And as a result, we all know them. I'm one. Maybe you are too, Michael. We know people who are zealous fans for Apple that any time Apple releases a new product, they're going to get it, no matter what. Well, I and, and I even regularly, I even regularly go to MacRumors.com just to kind of get a sense of what's coming next before the rest of the world knows. You know? Ab absolutely, I haven't worn a watch in twenty years until Apple decided to make a watch. 
When Apple decides to make a car, I'll buy the car. If Apple decided to make a sports coat, I would buy the sports coat. That's when you've crossed into raving fan advocacy. You've moved even beyond customer advocacy to fan advocacy, which is even better and is, frankly, the holy grail of all businesses. Well, you've transitioned perfectly into my next question because if we take the word fan and we dissect it a little bit, a lot of the social media marketers listening to this podcast are thinking about the fact that uh, we've got customers and then we have people that are fans on our Facebook page and Twitter and all these other places, um, or maybe watch our YouTube videos. And I think that that might be fan advocacy, but you've kind of alluded that there might be a difference between customers and fans and maybe not the way I'm defining it. I would love you to distinguish that a little bit. Sure. And I think uh, what's fascinating is the, the social media icons of the day, whether that's Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest or pick your social media flavor of the month, they all talk about it in the context of fans, mainly because they want fans instead of they, – they want a fan to be there because of what fan actually means. You know, it's interesting. Most people uh, have forgotten that fan is the abbreviation of the word fanatic. Mm. And a fanatic is someone who possesses and expresses excessive and single-minded zeal. I mean, fanatics, we think of them, and frankly, they're usually associated with either religious fanatics or political fanatics, right? The people that are out on the fringe who are just crazy, crazy loyal and crazy radical about their beliefs. When social media was first starting, that's what they wanted to create because they knew that there was really a growth curve there. Where it became a problem is when companies started saying, well, I just want more Facebook fans without recognizing that a fan on Facebook isn't the same as a customer. Mm. I believe that the evolution kind of goes like this. You have a fan on social media who then purchases whatever product or offering or service you have. They become a customer. And if you do your job right at treating them well as a customer, they shift from being a customer to being a fanatic. And at that point, they're driving your business. These raving fans are your non-salaried external sales force that are really driving your growth and your success because they become such strong advocates for who you are and what you do. So um, so you would say that fan, fan advocacy is a subset of customer advocacy. Is that correct? They're like the extreme versions of they're, – they're, they're the super um, – uh, the, the super fans, if you will, the super customers, the ones that love you even more than the rest, right? Exactly. And realizing that the majority of your listeners are, are steeped and deep in the social media world, don't get confused by Facebook's nomenclature of a fan. Right. Or Twitter's nomenclature. Well, of now they follow. call them likes. So they've added, it's funny. Right, right. It's it's funny. Like, so they're, they're like trying to change it, right? Yeah. But they're trying that sounds to even weirder. <laughs> it does because they're trying to create in the online world some type of a proof point that will allow brands to say, oh, this is legit. And the, and the problem is we haven't cracked the nut on this yet. Just because I liked your Facebook page doesn't mean I'm going to buy your product. Now, here's the thing. We talked earlier. I am a raving fan of Apple. And yet I have not liked their page on Facebook because guess what? I don't, I don't even know if they, I don't even know if they have one. I don't even know if they have one. They may not even have one. But <laughs> if they did, I still wouldn't like it. Here's why. I don't need to prove that I'm a fan of Apple. All you need to do is meet me 
you see my iPhone, you see my MacBook, you see my iWatch or my Apple Watch. I still want to call it the iWatch, even though I know they don't have the trademark for it. You know, I, I have all these visual displays of my Apple fandom. I don't need to do it on social media. And I don't, I want to be really clear. I don't mean to say that to disparage any of your listeners or people that are deep in social media. What I do think is an important conversation, which I know you advocate for, Michael, and a lot of the folks that attend things like Social Media Marketing World do, is that it's not enough to just have likes and to just have followers. There needs to be more substance there. Absolutely. And you and and that's really what matters. We're 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 beyond the vanity metrics. The vanity metrics were really cool when you were the first brand on Facebook and you could go to the board and say, "See, we have a thousand likes. Look how cool we are." But the vanity metrics mean nothing now. Now it's about what is the trackable ROI to someone expressing in an online capacity their support of your brand or your enterprise or your cause. And how do we draw direct correlation to that support into action, whether that's purchasing something, uh, retweeting something, uh, watching it and sharing it with friends. The, the metrics vary and that's okay. It's just more about action than kind of this passive reactive oh yeah fine i'll like that page so we we've spent some time talking about why customer advocacy matters what customer advocacy is and what fan advocacy is but let's step back and talk about the journey because i think that you've got some pretty cool you figured out some pretty cool phases of the customer journey which i think is really important for our listeners to to understand um and i'd love you to just kind of share that that journey that a customer goes down Absolutely. So most customer journeys fall into kind of one of two categories. Your customer is either wandering around in the darkness with a blindfold. They have no idea what's coming next. There's lots of fear, doubt, and uncertainty. Or they're on a roller coaster of high and low emotions. Sometimes the experience is great. Sometimes it's horrible. And it's back and forth and there's no end in sight. I believe that when constructing your customer journey, and I do believe that as business owners or consultants, this is your job. You need to construct a journey that is the ideal path you want your customer to take. You want to walk them through seven phases. And the seven phases briefly break down like this. Number one, assessing. This is a phase that we're all familiar with because this is the marketing phase. This is where the customer is assessing, are you the person they want to do business with? We then move to the next phase admitting. This is where they admit to themselves and to you by signing a contract or buying your product that they believe they need your service. They need your product. They need that your offering. Almost as quickly as they make this purchase, brain science shows us that dopamine floods their brain. They feel excited and joy and euphoria, and they're really super psyched about this new thing that's going to solve all their problems. But almost as quickly as that dopamine hits their brain, it starts to recede, and they move into a state of fear, doubt, and uncertainty. In common parlance, this is called buyer's remorse. In terms of the phases, I refer to it as the anxious phase, right? Where right after they've made the purchase and you're at an all-time high because you're slapping hands with the salespeople saying, we landed the client. This is awesome. This project's going to rock. We're going to make so much money. We're going to have such great impact. The client's going, oh my gosh, I hope I picked the right vendor. I hope I don't get fired. I hope this stays on budget. I hope this stays on time. And they're in a real state of anxiousness. And if we don't close that delta and close it quickly, 
Never again will the emotional state of your customer match your internal emotional state as the business. We then move to the next phase, activating, right? Some people call this a kickoff meeting. Sometimes this is when Amazon delivers the package and it arrives at your front door and you open it. Activating is that energetic motion where we begin officially delivering on the promise we made. You never get a second chance to make that first impression. And the reason why I call it activating is I want people to feel energized that this is time to activate the interactions and really bring a lot of force and energy and drive to the relationship. We then kind of go on the roller coaster dip again into the phase of acclimating. Acclimating is where the customer's getting used to dealing with you or doing business with you. Now, you've done this hundreds of times. You've run this type of consulting project. You've done this type of onboarding. You've done this type of software implementation hundreds of times. But for the customer, it's the first time they've ever done it, at least with you. You've got to acclimate them. You've got to hold their hand and walk them through your process. This is why onboarding is such a vital part to relationship building. It's those early stages where they're figuring out, are you going to be the kind of person they want to have a long-term relationship with? In our personal lives, we think about this as dating, right? Mm -hmm. Then we get to the phase of adopting. Adopting is when the customer takes ownership for the relationship. They adopt you. Apple has a relationship with me where I have adopted them. So have you, right? We get on Mac Rumors. We see what's coming next. We watch the keynotes about products that are going to be released in six months because we're so excited to know what it is. We've taken ownership for the marketing. We've taken ownership for the sales. We've adopted this brand. And last but not least, the seventh phase, the holy grail that everybody's searching for, advocating. This is when the customer becomes a raving fan, where they have to tell everyone they know what a great experience they've had with you, what a great product you have, what a great service you have, and they try to drive as many new people to sign up to be a part of this as possible. Assessing is the first stage where they're making the decision as to whether they should actually you know, dive in and make this purchase. Admitting is the actual, okay, I'm going to do it. The anxious stage is the fear, uncertainty, and doubt stage. I'm not sure. Did I do the right thing? The activating stage is the beginning or the uh, opening of the package or the beginning of the you know, uh, first meeting. Um, and then after that was acclimating, right? And that's the onboarding process. And then adopting is when the customer actually says, hey, I'm good. I can do this. It's kind of like the kid on the tricycle, right? I'm going to be able to drive this. I don't need the training wheels anymore. I'm assuming, is that accurate so far or no? Absolutely. You're spot on. And then the advocating is when they finally say, hey, I believe in this company. I believe in this product. I'm going to tell everybody I know about it. So um, I love, first of all, that you figured out A's for all seven. (laughs) How long did that take you? (laughs) It it definitely took a while. And some folks look at it and they're like, well, Joey, that makes it a little more convenient confusing. I look at it as it actually makes it a little bit easier because at the end of the day, aren't we all trying to get straight A's, right? We're all trying to do it exactly right. And this is the ideal (laughs) path, right? So what's fascinating, Michael, is most companies fail at the acclimating stage. Mm. Most companies make it all the way through to acclimation 
and they never properly acclimate their customers, which means the customer never adopts the relationship and never becomes an advocate. Now, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, well, Joey, you know, what happens if they don't make it all the way? Well, frankly, it's a missed opportunity, right? But the reality is not every customer is going to make it all the way. You want to set up your business and the structure of your operations to walk them through all seven phases. But I think it's important to acknowledge that not every customer is going to get to advocating, and that's okay, right? We just don't want them to stall out because of us. If they choose not to become an advocate, that's fine. But let's not, have, let's not make that choice for them by having a horrible activation and acclimation experience. So the acclimation stage you said is where most people drop the ball and I'm imagining I'm imagining why because once I ship the product to you I just move on to shipping the next product to the next customer and I don't even think right about what happens after you receive the product or absolutely so what can we do um, marketers because this is where it gets tricky for us marketers right because once the product is shipped most marketers kind of don't have a lot of control over what happens once that product is shipped or once that service you know team comes on board what can be done or what can be advised of the various people inside the company to help them understand you know how they can assist with the onboarding and how that can actually benefit the company as a whole like what are some tips you can provide here Well, there's a couple of things, Michael. Number one, I absolutely agree with you that most marketers believe that once the product ships or the contract is signed and it hands off to the implementation team or the service delivery team, that they no longer have any role, responsibility, or ability to influence the acclimation. But that's where I think they're actually wrong couple different things that can happen. Number one, if you're shipping a physical product, you can seed the packaging and the product with messaging and items that are designed to build engagement. Quick story. One of my clients sells a product that is a car seat cover for the back of your car so that when you carry your dog in the in the back seat, it doesn't tear up your seats. And they were selling these and they were doing a great job, but we were trying to figure out, well, how do we do better acclimation and lead to adoption and advocacy? The way we did it is there's an insert with the cover that says, go to this URL to watch an installation video. Mm. And it's a personalized installation video making sure the cover gets installed. Because let's be candid, we all have purchased products that we never took out of the package. Now, we may not want to admit that, but all I have to do is go into anyone's closet anywhere in America, and I will find clothes that still have the tags on them. Or how about books? Right? How about books that or haven't books been opened, that, right? Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> books that you're like, yes, I got it. Thank you, Amazon, for delivering it. And now it goes on the bookshelf or next to the nightstand with the 4,000 <laughs> other books I haven't read. It's right. like you've been to my house, Michael. This is great. <laughs> So, you know, the fact of the matter is there are things that we can do that we can seed into our product and service to make sure that that acclimation is smooth. As a business owner or a manager, one of the things you can do is make sure that the handoff between sales and service or the marketing team and the account managing team is smooth incentivize your marketing and salespeople as part of their salaries or as part of their financial compensation on retention, right? Right now, retention usually in most companies pays out a bonus to the account managing team. If it paid out a bonus to the sales team, 
don't you think they would be more focused on getting the right kind of clients in the door and making sure those clients stayed in the door once they got there? See, there's two pieces to this, right? There's the very structure of our organizations and how we operate our businesses. And then there's the very tactical elements of our packaging, our messaging, our follow-up that contribute to our ability to really create these remarkable experiences. My wife orders a lot of um, products from very small companies that seem to get this more than the big companies. And inside the box will often be a little, uh, sometimes even a handwritten note that says, if you love this product, would you give us a review on here? You know, eBay, Etsy, I don't know, whatever, you know? And it seems like these small guys understand the importance of getting the customer um, and, and even some restaurants, you know, will, uh, or even some experiences will say, if you, if you liked it, would you give us a review on TripAdvisor? Is that part of, is, 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 is that, I mean, I think that that's a marketing thing. I don't know if that's acclamation or if that's more adopting or, or asking for advocacy. Where does that fit into this thing? And, and can that kind of be part of it? I don't know. What are your thoughts? It, it absolutely fits into this and two distinctions. One, I think the smaller companies are better at this, absolutely, mainly because they have fewer customers, right? right? Pretty much any business in the history of the world, when you first started out and you had one or two customers, of course you were high touch and gave them lots of love because you had nothing else to do that day right? I mean, you had no one else that you were working with. So of course you showered them with the attention. When we get bigger, one argues that it gets harder to do at scale. But the flip side of that equation is that you have more resources. So you can actually bring to bear more tools and more possibilities to make that customer feel welcomed and loved. Um, I know at uh, you know, most of your listeners obviously are very familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk and his book, Jab, Jab, Right Hook, I think really addresses this. The problem with asking for a referral or asking for a testimonial or asking for a review in the package is that it's too soon. Right. I liken this stuff to dating. Imagine you go on a first date. You have a wonderful evening. It's absolutely wonderful. You hit it off. You walk the person home. You're standing at their door. You say, I had a lovely date. What did you think? They said, I had a lovely date too. You say, that's great. I'd love to go out with you again. They say, that's awesome. You say, wonderful. Let's do it next Friday. They say, next Friday sounds perfect. Let's make it happen. Imagine if you then said, well, before I go, you mentioned at dinner you have two roommates. And my gut instinct is the roommates are very similar to you, similar age, similar demographics, similar wants and needs in life. Would you be willing to give me their emails and phone numbers? Because if you enjoy <laughs> dating me, they're going to love dating me too. <laughs> this would be insane. Yeah. This would be insane to do in our personal lives. Right. Yet how often have you purchased something, especially in the world of software and online, where after you hit the shopping cart, it asks you to give emails of other people that might be interested in the product? I'm like, are you kidding me? Not only am I not going to give it to you now, but you've just made the bar that much higher for me to ever give you that information because you didn't stop to care about me to recognize that on purchase, I'm not going to even know whether your product or your service delivers on the promise you made. And until I know that, I'm not willing to put stake my name and reputation on your ability to deliver. So I love the idea of asking. I just don't want you to ask until after they've moved into the adoption slash advocating 
stage. You know, Joey, this Don't- reminds me so much of when I take my car, pick my car from service from the dealer, and they put this piece of paper on my seat, and they say anything less than perfect across the board is fail as far as we're concerned. And what does that do? That says to me, I'm tossing it. I'm not even going to do it because, like, you expect me to give you a perfect across the board. Have you ever experienced this or not when you've taken your car in for repair? I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous. It's like, I'm not going to fill that out. And, you know, if they had sent me an email a few days later and said, hey, did you enjoy your service? And I said, yes. And they said, would you be willing to take a survey? I mean, it, it, it's kind of manipulation in some regards. And I, I so, so this does beg the question, what do we do? Or how do we go about asking a customer to do something for us? And when do we do it, I guess? Absolutely. So two things. Number one, that has happened to me. And you're right. It's insane. The thing that most people don't realize, especially in the customer service scenario, is uh, with the car service, most often that dealership is incentivized on the number of perfect scores they get. So what they've decided is we're going to game the language in the way we ask you. And we're going to say anything less than perfect doesn't matter. So if you're not going to give a perfect score, you think, well, it doesn't matter, and you throw it away. Mm. It means they get fewer responses, but the responses they get, the people have been preconditioned to give them a perfect score. And what usually happens is those dealers receive bonuses based on the number of perfect scores. So you're right. We're absolutely being gamed. I'm a bigger fan of stuff like uh, Jay Bear talks about in his book, Hug Your Haters, of going to your customers and saying, we know that we have shortcomings. What do you think they are? We're constantly seeking to improve. We are dedicated to improvement, and we know that we don't always deliver. Can you help us be better? That's a completely different conversation. It's not the ego stroke of you're perfect, but what it is is it gives you actionable information that you can improve on. And then when you go back to that customer and you say, Michael, thank you so much for the feedback that if you've just done $1,000 worth of service on my car, the least you guys could do is clean the windshield before I drive out. You did that. Thank you so much. Now, when you go back and you say, hey, by the way, we've implemented a new policy where we clean everybody's windshield. Thanks to customer Michael for helping us make that a reality. Now you're on your way to being a fan because Mm -hmm. you've been heard, which takes us to that process of how do we do it, right? Breaks down into an acronym. Everything I do is about focusing on the first 100 days. And in order to focus on the first 100 days, you have to focus on first things first. It's an acronym, F-I-R-S-T. Here's how it breaks down. F, find out. Find out what's most important to the customer. What are the things that really matter to them? I, investigate, dig deeper, go beyond what they said they want to what they really want. And frankly, for your listeners, this is where everyone in social media has access to a gold mine. All you have to do is go on someone's Twitter feed or their Facebook wall or wherever it may be, and you can see all the things they actually love and care about, whether that's their kids, their dog, their favorite sports team, where they went to college. You go on LinkedIn, you see the causes and the companies they've worked for, etc. Do some homework, investigate to learn more about your customers. Then and only then, after you've found out what's important to them, after you've investigated, we get to the R, respond. Share your findings in a way that shows you did your homework. 
using a variety of different communication tools and not sounding creepy, show them that you've been paying attention when they've been speaking. Then take it one step further and S, surprise them. Give them gifts, give them presents, give them unexpected little things, even as simple as a thank you note. Imagine that scenario you talked about earlier where you go to get your car serviced. If instead of getting back in to a pre-printed form that says, nothing's better than perfect, score us here, you had a handwritten note from the manager of the shop that said, Michael, you bought your car here eight years ago. You've gotten every oil change here since. You continue to come back to us. It's an honor to serve you. And if there's ever anything we can do to serve you better, do not hesitate to let me know. Yeah, that would go. That would, that would, that would be that huge. That would blow their minds. And that would take all of four minutes with a pen and a note card to write that out. And guess what? They know you're coming. You've scheduled an appointment. Even if I it was typed up, I would still be impressed. You know what I mean? Even if it was typed, you'd be impressed. Yeah. Which brings us to the T. That's it. It's that simple. There is no T, right? <laughs> That's it. We're done because this stuff isn't curing cancer. It's not rocket science. If you find out what's important to them, you investigate a little deeper, you respond in a way that shows your care, and you surprise to keep the relationship interesting and exciting, that's all you need to put your customers first and have a remarkable experience in the first 100 days. Are you passionate about this stuff, Joey? I've got some strong feelings. You picked up on that a little. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, This is pretty awesome, Joey. Why don't you tell people where they can learn more about you and your passion and all the great things you've got going on? The best place is to come to my website, joeycoleman.com. That's J-O-E-Y, like probably some four-year-old you know, Joey. Uh, Coleman, like the camping equipment, C-O-L-E-M-A-N.com. Joeycoleman.com. You can see videos of me going crazy about this stuff, blog articles, learn more about my speeches, my coaching, my consulting. I'm on a mission. I believe that the bar for customer experience globally but particularly in the United States, is lying on the ground. The anti-up chips to create a great customer experience are minimal. And yet most companies, most organizations, most consultants, most people aren't even willing to sit down at the table and try to make something special. If you want to be part of creating remarkable customer experiences, let's chat, let's hang out. Would love to have you be part of the cause. Joey Coleman, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure. Well, I hope you got a lot out of this week's episode. Joey brought the fire. By the way, if there's anything we mentioned and you just didn't catch it, like all these acronyms and processes, don't worry. We take all the notes for you. Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash 209. That's where you'll find all the details. You can leave a comment for Joey or for me. Also, if you're new to this show, hit that darn subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. We've got an awesome lineup of shows coming. If you're a regular listener to the show and you haven't done so, you know what I'm going to ask. Would you consider giving me a rating and or a a review? It's really easy. It will take less than a minute. You can do it right now from your smartphone by visiting socialmediaexaminer.com slash iTunes. I would love it if you would do it. I would be greatly indebted to you. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you in the driver's seat next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day. And may social media continue to change your world, hopefully in a good way. Catch you next week. 
The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.